Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 22, it says, Now while they were staying in the Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. The Lord Jesus predicts his impending betrayal and death and resurrection for the second time. By the way, one third of the New Testament is devoted to the final week of the life of Jesus. The subject and meaning of his death and resurrection are I am going to suggest to you the most important issues in all of human history, all of human existence from the creation of the universe till its final consummation will have as its centerpiece this critical bit of information. The death of Jesus was pondered in the Old Testament by the prophets. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Peter wrote, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied the grace that should come unto you, searching what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. It was Peter's way of saying God by his Holy Spirit moved on the hearts of prophets to tell us that this was going to happen. It's predictive prophecy and it becomes one of the most powerful evidences of the supernatural nature not only of the Bible but of the gospel. And so the king predicts his betrayal In the opening verses, he says, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed. Once again, the disciples have returned to the Galilee. They've been in the northern regions. You'll remember that they've left the mountain of transfiguration. A young boy has been supernaturally delivered of demons. They make their way back to the Galilee region. Jesus repeats the prophecy and promise that he made earlier that he must suffer and that he must be killed, Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 12. And in that tiny little phrase that you might overlook, it says, while they were staying in the Galilee, that single expression, while they were staying in the Greek language is so interesting to me. When I was preparing this study, I, I, I looked up the meaning of the word. It's a long Greek word. It's, it has a prefix, a, a middle word, and a suffix. It's anastrephonemon. It really means to and fro. The idea seems to be, now while they were going to and fro, we might say here and there. The idea is that they seem to be making the rounds. And I'm going to suggest to you that this is important because some Bible teachers 
suggest that this might include the idea that what Jesus is in, what the Holy Spirit is saying in the passage and what Matthew is saying when he says that the Son of Man is about to be betrayed, it isn't just an offhanded statement. It isn't, oh, by the way, the Bronco game starts at 11, and I'm going to be betrayed and killed. In other words, it's something that you sort of insert in the middle of a conversation, hoping that maybe you will be introduced to this idea. But I'm going to suggest to you, it isn't an offhanded statement injected in the course of more pleasant conversation. One commentary reads, quote, he was drilling into them the fact that he was going to be killed and that he's going to be raised from the dead. And if that is the case, and I think that is the case, then it isn't just a single statement dropped in casual conversation. It's a repeated concern. Again, the same commentator says, quote, apparently he just kept moving about rather secretly so that he could indoctrinate his disciples to the fact of his impending death and resurrection. Interestingly, this fact is referred to by the angels in announcing his resurrection. Quote, Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in the Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day rise again, unquote. The idea being, he goes to this part of the Galilee. I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back to life. And you can imagine, the repetition is starting to wear on the hearts of the disciples. And again, it makes perfect sense to me. It makes perfect sense to me that Jesus is repeating over and over and over again what's about to happen. Why? Why is he doing this? I think that there's several reasons. Clearly, a death and a resurrection from the dead isn't on the religious leader's radar or on the disciples' radar. Once again, the deeply held majority opinion of the Jewish people is that a Messiah is going to come. He's going to overthrow Israel's enemies. He's going to establish God's righteous kingdom. Jesus speaks of a death. He speaks of a resurrection. In their mind and in their hearts, they must have been thinking, all kinds of things. Is Jesus speaking literally? Is he speaking figuratively? Is he speaking metaphorically? Because guess what? We live in a world where dead people don't come back to life. We know that it's literal language. And the reason why we know it's literal language, for those of you who have ever read the New Testament and you've walked into the future of what this book is saying, you and I are going to take the journey to Jerusalem. We're going to witness through the testimony of Matthew and the other writers the death of Jesus. He is going to die. He is going to be betrayed. He is going to come back from the dead. 
Were the disciples tempted to believe the statements of Jesus were figurative or spiritual? We know that they were tempted because that's exactly what happens in our day and age. There are people who simply don't believe that this is the case. On Thursday, I did a funeral and I talked about the reality of heaven. And afterwards, there was a lady who I went to and I spoke with very briefly. And she said, Pastor, remember when you said that heaven is a real place? He, the lady next to me said, I don't know if I believe that. And the lady turned to her and said, you better. No, we laugh. We, we laugh. We laugh because the reality is there really is hope. There is a reality in what Jesus is going to do. Did the disciples sign up for a suffering Jesus, a dying Messiah for sin? Or did they sign up for a powerful, sovereign Messiah who's going to return the Jews to the state of autonomy and glory that they're looking for? The Lord adds another element to this prophecy that he didn't talk about before, his betrayal by Judas. And I'm quite sure that when Jesus is making the repeated statements wherever they go, I'm going to be betrayed and die. I'm going to be betrayed and die. I'm going to be betrayed and die and come back to life. Judas is listening to this conversation. And by the way, the word betrayal translates an interesting Greek word, para, ditto, stei. Literally, the word literally means delivered up. You and I think of the word betrayal in its most wicked compromising, dark circumstance. But literally, when he uses the term delivered up, I'm going to suggest to you that it incorporates a couple of ideas, including the idea that the death of Jesus is ordained. It's predetermined. It's in the determined counsel and plan of God, our heavenly Father will deliver Christ up to be betrayed. For those of you who know the most famous passage in all of the New Testament, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, you have crucified, you have put him to death. Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 verse 23. In Romans 8.32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him, same word, for us all. How shall we not with him also freely give us all things, Romans 8.32. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Jesus will voluntarily surrender himself to be crucified. 
It says, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father in Galatians 1.4. Titus 2.14, who gave himself, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works, the Bible says. And we know the truth. That betrayal can only come from people that we care about. A stranger can't betray you. An acquaintance can't betray you. Betrayal only comes from people that we care about and we think cares about us. Betrayal by its very nature means to be unfaithful in guarding or keeping a confidence or keeping a trust. And the source of the betrayal won't be the religious leaders. It won't be the scribes and the Pharisees who hate him and hound him and are seeking to kill him. It won't be by the Roman authorities occupying their country. It's going to come from a trusted follower. And the repeated testimony of the scripture is that Judas will betray Jesus, deliver Jesus to be crucified in Matthew 26, 21. In Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5, it says, And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him unto them. It says in Mark 14, 10. The Lord Jesus says that even this was predicted, quote, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you will believe that I am who I say that I am. In John chapter 13, verses 18 through 19, God predicts it in the Psalms. Jesus repeats it in his earthly ministry for the purpose of persuasion. This is one of the most powerful reasons why we believe that the Bible is true. It's predictive prophecy. How in the world can you know hundreds and even thousands of years in advance? Jesus quotes Psalm 41 verse 9 and then he applies that quotation to himself. Quote, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me, unquote. The friend will betray him. For 30 pieces of silver, according to Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah eleven thirteen. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely sum they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. It's as if there is an envelope. There's a darkness that is stripped away just for a moment. And the psalmist gives you a peek into the future. Predictive prophecy. 
is meant to convince you of the supernatural nature, not only of what is being said, but that you can trust it. He not only predicts that he's going to be betrayed, but he also predicts the guilty party in verse 22 at the end of the verse. He's going to be betrayed, look what it says, into the hands of men. The betrayal is going to result in Jesus being handed over into the hands of men. What does this mean? In the biggest way possible, it means that human beings are by nature and invariably by choice at odds with God in rebellion against God. Typically, if you ask a person, do you love God? They'll say, oh, of course I love God, but they don't always mean it. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of people hate God. Do you know how we know that? It's evidenced by their resistance to the gospel and their rebellion against Christ and their refusal to believe that there's hope and grace and mercy that's available to them through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has already revealed the identity of the men who would kill him. Priests, scribes would hand him over to the Gentiles or the Romans for execution. We know that from Matthew chapter 20, verse 19. He's already said, I'm going to be handed over to the religious authorities who killed Jesus. Peter, in preaching to the Jews after Pentecost, accused the Jews, quote, him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God you have taken and by wicked hands crucified and slain he says the men who plotted and caused his death were Jews they were his own people this is why John would write he came into his own and his own received him not they weren't interested in the kind of Messiah that he claimed to be they weren't interested in a Messiah who would do anything other than provide them with power and advantage and liberation and freedom and glory and autonomy. And yes, people do want a Savior and people do want a Messiah and they do want to have a right relationship with God, but they don't want to have it through Christ. Because Jesus... Jesus asks people to turn from their sin and, and to submit to him. Humans require a savior. They want a Messiah who will give them what they want. The men who carried out his death were Romans. Jesus came to save sinners, the Bible says. Jews and Gentiles. Humans require a savior, and the irony is that the one who needs him most, the people who need a savior the most, 
will conspire and then kill him. And Paul places the execution of Jesus squarely in the lap, not simply of the Jewish people and not simply of the Roman people. He doesn't even simply put the death of Jesus into the lap of the people who lived in the past or even the people who were living in his presence. He was putting the blame on every single person who were guilty before God. Paul writes, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief salvation is always by innocent blood according to Hebrews 9:22 salvation always takes place through a person according to Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 and Acts chapter 4 verse 12 Salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. But we begin to discover something that salvation, because it comes by Jesus, we share equally in his death. Our sin placed him on Calvary's cross. Our sin may have placed him there, but his love kept him there. And so the king predicts his death. He says in verse 23, and they will kill him. So why does he die? If we speak from a purely historical and factual perspective, we might say that Jesus posed a threat to the religious hierarchy, the social, the political, the institutional structure. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 31, Jesus is in a confrontation with the religious leaders and in John's Gospel, chapter 10, it says in verse 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God, unquote. At this point, if that weren't true, Jesus, all Jesus would have had to have said was, you've got it all wrong. This is a horrible and a terrible misunderstanding. I never said I was God. But if he would have said, I never said I was God, would he be telling the truth or would he be lying? He would be lying. The religious leaders don't get the facts surrounding his identity wrong. They just simply don't believe it. Like so many of your family and friends, your neighbors. 
you'll meet them today. Most of you will talk to them today. You will have a conversation with someone who simply doesn't believe that that's true. That what the Bible says about Jesus and then what Jesus says about himself is true. In Acts chapter 2 verse 22, Peter again preaching after the resurrection of Jesus will say, Men of Israel, hear the words, hear these words, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands. You have crucified him and put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it wasn't possible that they should hold him, unquote. Peter is making those words because he knew that Jesus had repeatedly said to him, I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to come back to life. And when he makes a promise, he can't break his promise. The death of Jesus is described as a sinful act taken by lawless hands, having crucified and put him to death. But it's also described as a saving act, quote, in him. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. The death of Jesus was both a sinful act of rebellion against God and it was a saving act of atonement by God. Which is it? It's both. It's both. The Bible teaches that Jesus died for the world in John 3.16. He died for the elect in Ephesians 1.4. He died for each man in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 6 and in 1 John chapter 2 verse 2. In 1 Timothy 2.6 he says he, he died a ransom for all. In Titus 2.11 it says salvation has appeared for all men. We see the death of Jesus pictured. In the coats of skin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. In the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. In the Levitical offerings in Leviticus chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Henry Thiessen writes, quote, The death of Christ has a prominent place in the New Testament. The last three days of our Lord's life occupy about one-fifth of the narrative of the four Gospels. If all three and a half years of his public ministry had been written out as fully as the last three days, we would have a life of Christ that's 8,400 pages long. Tory claims that the death of Jesus is mentioned in the New Testament 175 times. By the way, there are 7,959 verses in the New Testament. That would mean that one out of every three, uh, one out of every 53 verses refers to his death. 
Jesus spoke about his death often. Destroy the temple and in three days I'm going to rise it up, John 2, 19. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, John 3, 13. Therefore does my Father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again, John 10, 17. Jesus frequently mentions his death and his resurrection in the same breath. Tear it down. I'll build it up. Destroy it. I'll bring it back to life. Because the death of Jesus is so important. It has given rise to false theories about its meaning. This would include the false idea that Jesus died in order to repay Satan. That somehow human beings sold their immortal soul to Satan through sin. And that Christ's death is repayment for a debt owed to Satan. The only thing God owes to Satan is a permanent place in hell. And that's why you don't have to go to hell. You don't belong there. It was created for the devil and his angels. It wasn't created for you. Dr. John Walvoord writes, quote, Christ in his death fully satisfied the demands of a righteous God for judgment on sinners and as their infinite sacrifice provided a ground not only for the believer's forgiveness but for justification. That means being made right in God's eyes. And then sanctification, that means being given the ability to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. And it's true that the death of Jesus was necessary because of God's holiness and man's sinfulness according to Romans 3.10. It accomplishes the redemption of sinners, the sanctification of saints, and the destruction of Satan. In short, Jesus will die to absorb the wrath of the Father, to learn obedience and be perfected, to achieve both his resurrection and our resurrection. Jesus will die to show his love for us, to cancel the legal demands made by the law against us, become a ransom for us, provide the basis for our justification, take away our condemnation. The death of Jesus will abolish the need for circumcision, rituals, and the ba- and other ritual religious basis of salvation. The death of Jesus will make us holy and blameless and perfect and the death of Jesus will bring us eternal life reconcile us to the father and then give us access to heaven forever Paul argues that through one man sin entered into the world in Romans chapter 5 and this is why Jesus can save you that through one man's sacrifice you can be forgiven. He predicts his betrayal. He predicts his, his death, but then he predicts his resurrection. Look what it says. And on the first day, no. The second day, no. The third day, he'll be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Again, Jesus points to a resurrection. Isn't this funny? They hear the death part, 
but they completely ignore the resurrection part. The resurrection will bring vindication and victory. But the same sentence seems to go largely unnoticed by the disciples based on their response. The resurrection is denied by skeptics and hated by Satan. Satan invites the skeptic to simply say, you know what, it never happened. But what about the evidence? Even Christ's most bitter, bitter enemies conceded that he said this. His bitter enemies concede that he died. Some suggest his resurrection was a part of an elaborate hoax, a a fraud perpetuated and perpetrated on naive peasants. Or they suggest it was the product of mass hallucination or a suspect vision. Others suggest that perhaps Jesus rose in spirit but not in fact. And in that case, Jesus rose in their mind, in the memories of his friends and families. Paul calls this nonsense in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. David predicted it, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. These are the very verses cited by Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 25 through 28. And again in verse 31. And again cited by Paul in Acts 13, 35 as a reference to the resurrection of Christ. Isaiah predicted it, quote, And he made his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. That statement, he shall see his seed, is, is the Old Testament way of saying he will come back to life and see the fruit of his labors. He shall prolong his days, it says in the text of Isaiah, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul. He will be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah says he's going to come back to life. He's going to come back to life. It's going to matter. It's going to make a difference. Jesus predicted it in Matthew 12, 38, Matthew 17, 19, and 22 and 23, and 20 and 18 and 19, over and over and over again. Ironically, the enemies of Jesus remembered his repeated threat. In Matthew 27, listen to what it says. Sir, we remember that that deceiver said that while he was yet alive, after three days, I'm going to come back to life. After three days, I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last error will be worse than the first. It says in Matthew 27, 62 through 64, the religious leaders knew that this was going to present a problem. Jesus repeatedly said it was going to happen. And you remember Pilate's response? Oh, so you want to set a guard on a dead man? Do do whatever you think. Hey, whatever floats your boat. 
by the way, if Jesus is going to come back to life, will the combined armies of Rome keep, prevent it from happening? And you know what's interesting? All of hell and all of hell's power won't negate the promise that Jesus has made to you if you love him. I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. People will whisper in your ear and people will challenge and suggest that when you're dead, you're dead. But because Jesus said, because God brought me back to life, I'm going to bring you back to life. You know what's interesting? The religious leaders remembered what Jesus said. The women didn't remember in Matthew 27, 62. Mary Magdalene didn't remember in John 20, 13. Peter and John didn't remember in Luke 24, 12 and John 20, verse 9. The apostles didn't remember in Luke 24, verses 9 through 11. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't remember in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Thomas didn't remember in John chapter 20, verse 24. All of his followers seemingly forgot and they all remembered. How do you account for that? And then Jesus does come back to life. The Roman soldiers that they set as a guard turn out to be witnesses. The religious leaders who try to suppress the information and effectively refute the facts can't. Soldiers saw him. There was an empty tomb. There was no body. I know, I keep thinking of my dad. No body, no crime. Angelic appearances, resurrection appearances. He appears not once, not twice, not five times, not even 10 times, not even 15 times. He appears in a post-resurrection body 17 times to 500 people or more, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's seen by Mary. He's seen by the women. He's seen by, by the several apostles. He's seen on the road to Emmaus. He's seen by Thomas. Every single person who seemed to forget winds up seeing him. He's seen by James, his brother. He's seen by Stephen while he's being stoned. He's seen by Paul as one born out of time. The resurrection of Jesus is our declaration of independence from sin. It's our bill of rights. It's our constitution. Our sign isn't just simply a cross and it isn't simply an empty cross. It is a cross and an empty tomb. And if you deny the resurrection, you have to come to six sickening conclusions. Number one, all gospel preaching is a waste of time, useless. I just wasted 45 minutes and you wasted 45 minutes listening to me. The past, the present, and the future is absurd and meaningless and pointless and fruitless. All preachers are frauds and liars. All living Christians remain in their sin. All past Christians are in hell. All reason and purpose for living is extinguished. And Jesus is found to be a liar and a fraud. Number two. 
All of that is true. Unless Jesus really was betrayed, did die, and did come back to life. And if that's true, then you have hope. One Bible scholar has translated this passage. Look again in verse 23. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. It could be translated deeply depressed. You want to know why? Because the news that Jesus brought brought resistance Shock, sorrow, disappointment, and unbelief. Do you know why they're exceedingly sorrowful? Because they don't believe them. Just like some of you. You hear the news about his death and it's so tragic and it's so horrible and it's so awful. Mark's gospel tells the disciples, tells us that the disciples were afraid. They were afraid to ask what that meant. They were afraid to say, Jesus, you just said you're going to be betrayed. You're going to die. You're going to come back to life. Could you tell us exactly what that means? And could you imagine if they said that, Jesus is going to say, it means exactly what it means. See me? Come here. This person you're with, I'm going to be tossed in a real prison. I'm going to die on a real cross. And I'm going to come back for real. Betrayed. Killed. Risen. I had a conversation with someone not too long ago. A skeptic. Philosophical naturalist. Doesn't believe the Bible is true. Scientist. I said, I was exactly like you. Skepticism. Criticism. Pain. And everything changed when I believed with all of my heart that Jesus came back to life. You know what's interesting? The Old Testament writers promised his rejection in Psalm 69, predicted both his manner and place of death in Isaiah 53, 12, the piercing of hands and feet in Psalm 22, 16, Zechariah 12, 10, that he would be stared at in death, Zechariah 12, 10. The psalmist said that the Messiah would come back to life, Psalm 16, 10. The Messiah would take his place next to God's right hand in Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus, the risen Jesus, later reminded his disciples in Luke 24, 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything, everything, everything must be fulfilled which is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms. Psalm 
would you doubt? Why would you remain sorrowful? Why would you remain skeptical? Why would you remain unconvinced? It's got to be something else. It's not the facts that you're concerned about. It's something else inside of you. And I'm going to pray that whatever that is, that it'll be lifted so that you can experience instead of deep and exceeding sorrow, joy. Can you imagine your unbeliever, your unbelieving friend, your unbelieving family member, they come up to you and they go, you know what, I want you to be depressed like me. I want you to be skeptical like me. I want you to live a life of ambiguity, absent hope, hoping for the best, being uncertain about everything. And you go, that's not what I want. I want to live my life like heaven is a real place. Is that you? It could be. You're only a prayer away. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who's exceedingly sorrowful this morning, who lives their life distant and disconnected from the predictions that have been made about Jesus, from the prophecies that must be fulfilled, from the promises that are literally littered in every page of their Bible. That a real God loves them, that he will save them in Christ, that there's forgiveness and hope and grace and mercy for every single person who wants it. And Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will speak to every person's heart. Lord, I pray that they would admit that they're sinners in need of a Savior. Lord, I pray that they would be able to answer just this very simple set of questions. Am I a sinner? If the answer is yes, then answer this question. Do you want forgiveness of your sins? If the answer is yes, then answer this question. Do you believe that Jesus was betrayed and that he suffered, that he died, and that he came back to life? And if the answer is yes, then I pray that they would come to the realization that a living Savior, a living Jesus, a living and loving Jesus is able to do what he promised to do forgive you, save you, love you, cleanse you. Heavenly Father, I pray that they would pray this simple prayer. Dear Lord, I believe that Jesus loves me and that he died for me and that he rose from the dead and that my sins separate me from God and that if I confess my sin and forsake my sin and turn from it and turn to the Savior, that you will wash me and cleanse me and forgive me forever. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer, 
I want to see you after the service. You should come up to me and say, I prayed that prayer. I want to help you on your journey. Let's stand.